Merry Christmas. I'm going to uh, take a personal moment and give uh, some pastoral advice, which I know may or may not be a dangerous thing to do. Give pastoral advice about Christmas. Last week I told you that the uh, 17th century Puritans canceled Christmas, uh, outlawed Christmas, uh, made it illegal uh, because Christians had basically forgotten or were in many of their uh, festivities, uh, had forgotten the centrality of Christ. I thought it was wise for me to come back to that and give some of my own, I guess, how I think about Christmas, just as pastoral advice. And it's pastoral, you know, it's like in Robert's humble opinion, because uh, you go down the, down the street and a pastor will give you different advice. So, but the, the, the thing about Christmas is that we can't be overly legalistic about it because we made it up. <laughs> um, because the church has decided in its tradition to celebrate and to focus in, in this time of year. And so much that goes on around it is, well, all, of, all that goes on around it is simply tradition. So just clarifying some of my own thoughts. First of all, I don't agree with the Puritans, and I don't think we should cancel Christmas. Right? I think it was the wrong answer to a real issue. Uh, there, were, there were some things I think they were aiming at. You know, they, the one thing that they did get right was that a lot of that goes on doesn't necessarily have as its focus Christ. And that is true. There are two celebrations in my mind, and this is just for pastoral, the way Robert thinks about it and sorts it out in his own heart and his own mind, is I think there are two things that are going on, right? And one is Christian, and one is just tradition and culture uh, and things that go on. And both are okay in their own place and understanding them. Two celebrations, one Christian and one cultural. So I want to separate them out. As a Christian, uh, the church has decided in the month of December, we're going to celebrate an advent. We're going to take our times of worship and we're going to focus on the incarnation of Christ. And so in our public worship, our corporate worship, what we're doing now and every Sunday morning, but also in our private worship, families do it around Advent calendars and Advent readings or in our personal worship. There is a focus in our personal, private, and corporate worship around the incarnation and what God has done in Christ. But also, the culture has a lot going on. They're celebrating reindeer and Santas and shopping and gifts, and there are wintry scenes and icicles and and sleighs and snowmen, and there are light displays and a lot of it. And I think the Puritans were right in the sense that very little of it, yeah, you know, most of it has very little to do with what we're celebrating and what we're doing, right? I don't think it has a direct correlation. But I don't think the answer is to cancel Christmas either. I don't think we have to pretend that it all all has the same focus. I think we could say there are two different things. As Christians in the world, we celebrate very focused, and then all this other goes on. So my place, this is where I live. Let's enjoy the lights and the parties and the gift giving as part of cultural tradition and just not pretend that it has something to do with Jesus necessarily. At least for me, it's a stretch many times to, to get there. I don't think it has to. I want to keep my heart and my priorities straight. Christmas is a matter of private and corporate worship of the Lord that we know and love and celebrate I want to keep those priorities straight during this time of year. For me, the goal is not to let all those cultural traditions and the busyness crowd out my heart of worship, right? I want there to be space in my personal worship and in my corporate worship, never for these things to be crowded out by some of those other things. But that's true. Isn't that true every day of 
every year, you know, every Sunday, to not let the crowd, the busyness, and all the stuff that goes on outside crowd out my worship. So I think we need to avoid being legalistic because there are no rules. You can't find in Matthew chapter 2, celebration of Christmas and the rules, thereby we should, you know, this is what you should do and not do. I think sometimes I hear people laying down laws. I think we should avoid legalism at all times of the year, particularly about something that's not even in the Bible. This is Robert's two cents. <clears throat> Forgive me if I've stepped on any toes or how, uh, but let's, let's, let's celebrate Christ this morning. Let us focus in. Last week we read from Isaiah chapter 9, um, verse 2, but this week we're going to jump ahead into the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Hear then the word of God. And now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph and before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. We're going to look at the context, but the sermon really is out of verse 23 and really is out of one word, the name Emmanuel. You'll see the points follow. Emmanuel means God with us, and we're going to look at God with us. And that's where we're going to flow. But we have this context. When first, just remembering where we were last week, that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, we read that the people who walked in darkness had seen a great light. And the people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And we said that we talked a fair amount about that darkness, about the moral and spiritual darkness that it refers to. There's so much suffering and injustice. There's so much ethnic hatred and human cruelty, wars and trafficking and suffering and pain. And there always has been. It was written 2,000 years ago and not much has changed in regards to the darkness, the great darkness to which the light has come. But when people experience suffering, when we witness suffering close up in our own lives or in our own communities, in our own culture, and when we see a suffering world, even as we celebrate Christmas this year, if you turn on the TV, the suffering that is taking place at this moment is immense. And people wonder, is there a God? And if so, why doesn't he do something to stop all of it? Where is God? God can seem far away. The philosophers through the century have called this the problem of evil. How can there be a good, sovereign God and there be so much pain and suffering? How can there be a good God and and this happened to me? It gets very personal for very many people. I believe in a good God and yet 
How does this happen? How can he allow so much? I wrestle with the opposite end of that question. I wrestle with how can there be so much evil and suffering in the world and there be no God and there's no hope and it has no meaning and there is no redemption. How can that be? How can there be nothing more In my experience, God is not as far away as some think. And so we look this morning at our text. And we see in verse 18 that it tells us this is how the birth of Jesus took place. Here's what happened. Here's how it all went down. There was a virgin, a young girl named Mary. She's betrothed but not married yet. And she turns up pregnant. It's all very awkward. In verse 19, we're told that she's not married to Joseph yet. They've not been together. And so he assumes the worst, which is entirely logical and understandable. And so he decides he's going to divorce her. This is infidelity is is one of the only grounds for biblical divorce. And so in this betrothal, he sought to do it quietly, not to embarrass or to do whatever. But he's, he's thinking it's... It's got to happen. But in verse 20 is where we leave the realm of normal history and, uh, and, a, and we step out of the normal flow of things because a supernatural being uh, intervenes and tells a story, gives a message about a miracle, a supernatural event. We leave the realm, and that's where in verse 20 we're told, but even as he considered these things and was thinking about how to quietly divorce Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and speaks to him and says, Joseph, don't fear to take her as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. A supernatural being tells him a supernatural thing is taking place. Almighty is intervening in history. The normal flow of, of, of human biology is being interrupted. So he says, go ahead, get married. Mary, Mary, Mary. Because the child conceived in her is the result of a supernatural, creative act of God. God has done something. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, it's described like this. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. The power of the Most High God is going to overshadow you, and therefore the child that is going to be born in you is going to be called Holy, the Son of God. The power of the Most High. This is that's that language that, that, of God's sovereignty and power. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. The, the God who created all human beings is going to create another one. Is, is, is doing that work in a sense, uniquely again. The child in Mary's womb is, is God Most High creating a child, a, a baby, f- for a specific purpose. He's doing something. The angel says God is, is doing something unique here. So marry the woman because in the midst of it, God is accomplishing his purpose. The purpose is stated in the very next verse. it says that she is going to bear a son and you should call his name Jesus. Give him this name because for, this is the purpose of this child, and you're to give him a a specific name because his purpose is this, 
He is going to save his people from their sins. That is why God created a baby in Mary's womb. He says he's sending a savior. Someone who's going to save his people from their sins. He's, he's creating a baby. He's creating a body. He's sending a savior. And we'll come back to this in just a moment. But he goes on to say that all of this is the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. This has been God's plan for a long time. And he told us it was his plan. And now this plan is coming to fruition into fulfillment in the birth of this child. And so he quotes for us from Isaiah. And he says, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. They're going to call his name this baby that God created for a specific purpose. They're going to call him which means God is with us, right? Jesus, the child he created, is God with us for the specific purpose to save his people from their sins. God is revealing his intention to draw near. You're going to call him Emmanuel. God is with us. His intention is to draw near, to enter creation to be with us in a new way. God says, I'm going to be with you in a new way, in a creative way, literally the creation of a child. The virgin is going to give birth to the Son of God. That's what Luke said. He's going to be called Holy, the Son of God. So this, this virgin, this girl is going to give birth to the Son of God. His name is God with us. And so this birth of Jesus, the fulfillment of God's intentions, ancient intentions, to be with us. God's purpose in creating a child in Mary's womb is to have a body. He created a human body for himself. That's what the scripture tells us. He created the human race and in, and in this moment he's creating a human body but he's creating it for himself. It will be his body. God became a man. This is what the scripture tells us. He took on our humanity. He, in, he invaded his creation in the person of Jesus Christ. He created a body for himself so he can become, <clears throat> excuse me, so that he could become one of us. Colossians 2 verse 9, it says this, In him, that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily or in a body. He created a body so that he could dwell in it, so that he could live as a man among men. He became incarnate. John chapter 1 tells us the same thing. In John chapter 1, you see it in verse 1, and then in 14, in verse 1 it says, in the beginning was the Word, that is in the beginning of the world and before creation, it's very clear in the context, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and verse 14, and that Word that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to dwell among us, it says. We've seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son, that unique Holy Son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. All of that is a way of just saying God with us. The word that was God took on flesh to dwell among us. God is with us in the person of Jesus. 
The Son of God didn't come into existence at His birth. He already existed. He existed from all eternity. The Word was with God in the beginning, and He was God. He was with God in the beginning, and He became flesh, took on flesh. He came in that sense. He came into existence. He already existed. He he invaded history by taking a body and becoming one of us. We see it in, this is Jesus' self-consciousness, right? We can agree with him or not agree with him, but this is what Jesus thinks, right? This is what the authors of the scripture think. Jesus in John 17, on his last night on earth when he's with his disciples and sharing with them and teaching them, preparing them for his own death. And part of that teaching is this, is he prays, he says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Before there was a world, Jesus says, I shared the glory of the Father. And at the end of his ministry and his life, he is praying, and now, Father, glorify me again. Take me home. Restore me to my glory. He was sent into the world. Octavius Winslow, a 19th century pastor, theologian, puts it this way. He said, and this is capturing all of it, he said, descending from a pre-existent state of glory, he made his advent into our nature, becoming a man, assuming everything that was essentially human, while relinquishing nothing that was essentially divine. He was intent on being a man because he was intent on redeeming man. His first step was to descend into that nature, which he was to ransom and exalt. My friends, this is the Christian faith. And anything less than this is no longer Christian. This has been the Christian faith since Jesus was born. And those who have departed from it have departed from Christ as he has given himself to the world and revealed himself in the scripture. God is with us. So we move into two. Jesus is God who is with us. God came to be with us. We said that was his intention. That's who he is, but his intention, his purpose was to be with us, right? To be among us, to be one in us. He says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He was one of us for a time. And we return to the question, why would the Almighty create a body for himself and enter his creation as a man? Why would he do it? It is very unique in the history of the world. And so in verse 21, we return to that statement of purpose that he gives us. She's going to have to call him Jesus because there's an intention and a purpose in who this child is and what he will do. He is going to ransom his people. He's going to save his people from their sins. In other words, God is on a rescue mission, right? In other words, from from before the creation and in time, he knew and he planned and he told us that the day would come when the virgin would conceive and you're going to call his name Emmanuel, who's going to be, I'm going to be with you and among you for the purpose of rescuing and saving a people for myself. The child will be our savior. He will deliver us from the just judgment of God against our sin. This is the thing as we look at our world, we say the uh, 
original sin and the doctrine of the fall is the only empirically verifiable doctrine that we hold. That you can just say, read the newspaper, walk out your door, look at the world, look at the mirror at your own heart, and we can see the reality of the rebellion of mankind against their creator. The brokenness and the fallenness of sin. How many of us not only look at the world and say, what's wrong with it? We don't look in the mirror and be like, what's wrong with me? Romans 1.18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We live in a, a country and in a world that is suppressing the truth in a rebellion against God. Why? So that we can do whatever we want to do. And that tends to go very poorly. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of this. And the scripture says we're helpless to save ourselves. We're unable to to save ourselves, to deliver ourselves from the judgment or the wrath that is revealed against these things. It is coming against these things. The judgment that is due against these things, against a world in rebellion and sinning against the holy God, the one who made them. As we slap them in the face and walk the other way. His righteous judgment against our sin. And so God in His grace, what the Scripture tells us is that God in His grace decided to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To deliver ourselves out of our own rebellion. And the the just judgment against our sin. God decided to come and to do for us what we couldn't do. That is to save us by paying our debt. It's like a man who goes overboard. You imagine a, those ocean liners out in the middle of the Pacific. No land in any direction. And a man goes overboard. And then he sinks down into the depths. Scripture says essentially that is the state of mankind. In the midst of a sea of rebellion and sin. And he has sunk under the waves. And he cannot save himself. And God is the one who dives overboard and goes after him. He jumps into the depths. He jumps into the dark depths of the water. He he goes down to where the lost man is, where the dying man is, right? He goes after him. He, He takes hold of him to bring him out and to save him, to do for that man what he could not do for himself. This is what the scripture says is going on. He lived that righteous life. He shared our nature. He's born in a body, shared our nature, lived that life, the righteous life, that life that pleases God and honors God, that is obedient to God, that, that does do honor to who he is, a life that you and I fail to live every day. Jesus came and lived that life. And then he offered himself on the cross to die in the place of sinners, to bear the penalty of our sins. So that through faith in this Christ, this Messiah, this Savior, through faith in Him, we may be forgiven and saved from the hell that our sin deserves. Jai Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, says this, the crucial significance of the cradle at Bethlehem lies in its place, in the sequence of steps that led the Son of God to the cross, 
of Calvary. If we do not understand Christmas, we will not understand Christmas until we see it in this context as one of the steps on the way to the cross. Jesus was born to die. He took on flesh and bone so he could bleed and die and make a way for lost sinners to be saved. To save us from the just wrath. Have you really, really ever understood what Christmas was about? I, was, I grew up, <clears throat> we didn't really go to church very often and I, I had no idea. Christmas and Easter. When I found out what Easter was all about, I was really dumbfounded. I mean, I had no idea. You grew up and had Easter baskets and Easter bunnies, kind of like Christmas. There's a lot that goes on. That's very little to do with Jesus. And so it was later in life, I was 18 years old, before I had ever heard any of these things. And it changes everything. Have you put your faith and trust in the Jesus that the Scripture reveals and tells us is God on a rescue mission? God for us, God with us, God who came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to pay our debt so that through faith in him we can be forgiven if you put your faith and trust, believing that what Jesus did, he did for you. And it's at that point he becomes your savior, to love and to trust him that what he did, he did for you. Is he your savior? 2 Corinthians 5.19 tells us that in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses, their sins against them, by forgiving them through faith in Christ and what he did. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is the essence of the private and corporate worship during Christmas, right? This is, this is what we as Christians is the Mary in the Merry Christmas is, is that, it, that, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Christmas is what God has done in Christ. And when this is our heart at Christmas, I feel like I'm free to enjoy the rest of it. To be Mary, there's a spirit about me and about us as believers that we carry into everything else that we do. And we're free to enjoy the rest as it is, with this at the heart of it. At the heart of it. And so we return to the opening question. In this fallen world, where is God? And the answer that the scripture gives us is that God is in Christ, reconciling us and the world to himself. God is in Christ. Not only did he enter into our humanity, into our suffering, diving deep in, into our rescue on the cross for our sin, bearing our sin, forgiving our shame, but having come near, the scripture says, having come near, he will never leave us nor forsake us. That is the us where I'm reaching, right? He, he is God who was with us for our salvation and he is with us. Us and that being with us is something that it will never change. It says that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. His name is always going to be Jesus Emmanuel. God with us. In the midst of this fallen, broken, darkened world. There is this light of hope. On them a light has dawned. 
On them a light shines in the midst of the darkness. The Bible does not shy away from the problem of evil. There are ways in which I believe it is more honest about it. It faces it squarely and honestly. Of the darkness of our world, it has no doubt. Sin has broken everything. But God promises that there is a day coming when he will put an end to all of it. That he will execute a perfect justice. And all things will be made new. He says that day is coming. It is not yet. Not yet. But he says the day is coming when that will happen. We want to know why not now. And I don't have an answer for you per se, other than to say God has a purpose. He is still working on his rescue portion of his mission. He is still gathering the church and the saints from the four corners of the earth. He is still building a people and saving a people for himself. But the day is coming. History has an end point, a goal, a purpose. And the day is coming when he will Execute a perfect justice. And it is mercy. It is mercy that he hasn't done it yet. But as God's purposes play out in history, he promises to be with us. He is still God who is with us. Each one of us. In John 14, I told you that Jesus in the upper room, when he prayed, you know, restore me to my glory, that same dialogue in the upper room discourse on his last night in John 14, he says this, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Who is his helper? He's going to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth who dwells with you and he will be in you, I will not leave you as orphans, even though I am being restored to my glory, even though I am leaving, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, he says, I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, I will, be, I will dwell with you and I will be in you, I am God with you now and forever. It's one thing to say that God sees it. He's looking down from a state different. He knows what's going on. It's another thing to say he is here. That a light is shown in the darkness. Among us. That he's done the deep dive to save us from our darkness. And that as we have to persist and to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He still is with us. Never leaving us nor forsaking us. Isaiah 43, 2 and 3 says this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I will be with you as your Savior in time and in eternity. He doesn't say there won't be deep waters. He doesn't say there won't be some fire. We all know the fire of suffering. We all know we have not been delivered from the fallenness of this world yet. But he says, but when you go through it, when you walk through it, I, will be, I am with you. I am your God. I am your Savior. I will never leave you. I will walk with you even... Yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and when that day comes, he says, I am with you. I am with you. 
This is the experience of every child of God, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ, who know the forgiveness of their sins and have made peace with God and have been reconciled to him and now know them as Father, have been taught to pray, our Father who is in heaven, know his presence and their grace in his life, the peace and the comfort and the strength and the hope, the hope beyond even death, now and forever. Because every moment of every hour of every day, he is God with us. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us in Jesus. That you did not leave us as you found us, lost in the depths of the sea and beyond help. Thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves in giving a Savior. Who may pull us from the depths, forgive us of our sins, reconcile us to our God and Father, and abide with us in grace and mercy till the day we see you face to face. Help us to celebrate Christmas well as we embrace Christ by faith. Give our hearts to you in worship and walk with you day by day. For these things we ask and pray in the name of Jesus.